And I'm uh, incredibly grateful to be here and to be sober tonight. And welcome to the three of you that introduced yourselves as new to Alcoholics Anonymous and maybe the few more of you that might not have. Um, If I say nothing else tonight, I want you to know that I love Alcoholics Anonymous with absolutely every fiber of my being. And that um, the totality of the woman that I am today is a direct result of being in here with you guys for uh, one day and 26 years. My sobriety date was yesterday, October 10th, 1984. I'm well into my 27th year. (laughs) I love Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, John, thank you so much for coming or for asking me to come up and and share with you guys this evening. I I was taught when I was brand new in here that I was to do absolutely anything that I was asked to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I took a little offense to that because the first thing that you guys wanted me to do was be your ashtray putter-outer person. (laughs) (laughs) Got about two weeks sober, and I used to show up like 30 to 45 minutes early, and we had these long tables, and I would space the ashtrays equally from the ends of the table so that all your frail little arms could ash your cigarettes in the ashtray. (laughs) (laughs) I was the best ashtray putter-outer person in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, you guys promoted me to your coffee maker. (laughs) No, I take that back. You guys made me your coffee cup washer first. And and we had ashtrays back then that I used to put out, and so now I've got to wash the ashtrays. And by this time, I got about a month sober, and I hate you. And uh, (laughs) pretty much all of you, because most of you are just rude. And so I would show up, and I would... uh, go to the meeting, and when you guys really made me mad, I would wash the ashtrays first before I washed your coffee cups in the dirty water. (laughs) 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 And I only did that a couple times, because making that amend at the public level is just kind of like, you know, in the 12 and 12, it says it's through repeated humiliations that we begin to learn something of humility, and I don't like humiliation, so I kind of stopped doing that, and you guys made me your coffee maker next, and I... I was in the United States Navy for a couple years, and uh, by this time I'm a couple months sober, and I thought I should be elevated to, like, GSR or something, because uh, I'm, like, vying for presidency, you know? But, uh, you guys made me your coffee maker, and I would make this rank Navy coffee, and uh, I would serve toothpicks with it so you could get the grounds out of your teeth, <laughs> and you would come up after chewing it and go, good, Navy coffee, baby, and you just, like, let me be your coffee maker, and... Uh, And somewhere along the line of serving Alcoholics Anonymous, I absolutely fell in love with this thing. Uh, There's nothing like it anywhere that I have ever been. And um, I told you my sobriety date's October 10th, 1984. I have 26 years. That means I got sober when I was six. uh, (laughs) God, don't I wish, right? And uh, No, you know, I think my biggest birthday after number one was 20. Uh, because I had been sober half of my life. I came into Alcoholics Anonymous at the ripe old age of 20, and I had devastated everything that mattered to me. And uh, I can tell you that long before I ever picked up a drink of alcohol, I needed one desperately. And I didn't know that. I didn't have anybody in my life that I could look at the effect that they got from a drink of alcohol and go, like, I think that looks like a good idea. And so... uh, 
I didn't know I would go to kindergarten and had to be pried off my mom's leg. And uh, I was kind of an outgoing, energetic, not too shy, very talkative, imagine that kind of kid. And, and I just felt wrong at five years old, and there was no reason that I should feel that way. I was raised in Manhattan Beach in Southern California. It's this little upper middle class beach community. And by the time I hit middle school, uh, I knew that there was something just incredibly wrong with me, and I had no idea what it was. I went to that middle school, and I was the kind of kid that would sit around the dinner table and know that my mom loved my brothers and sisters way more than she loved me. And uh, I'm an only child. So <laughs> there was something incredibly wrong with the way that I think. And I'd like to tell you newcomers that that's not the case today, but I'm taught not to lie to you in here. I, I, I think wrong. And I've been sober for a long time, and it's so imperative for me to have a sponsor that gives me direction and guidance in a, and is an interruption in the insanity that goes off in my head sometimes. Because I, I, sober, will walk into a meeting and have you say good morning and spend the next hour and 20 minutes trying to figure out what you meant by that. And, uh, and what you meant was good morning, but I'm looking at the inflection in your tone. And, you know, yesterday you said hi, honey. Today it's good morning. Like, what did I do? Because I'm, I'm selfish, and I'm, I'm self-obsessed, and I'm full of self-centered fear, and I have this doubt about who I am as a woman and a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. That is insane. And I love to run my own life according to fancied self-sufficiency and failed self-reliance. That is just the nature of who I am with a long time sober. And the great thing is that I have these spiritual principles that you guys have given me that that are an interruption in that and a sponsor that is like a loud one. Uh, I started drinking in the seventh grade. I, I used to go to this little middle school, like most of us did, right? And, uh, and I would walk into that school, and I would look at all these little girls, and they were five foot tall, really, like teeny tiny, long flowing blonde hair, these sparkling little blue eyes, and these bitch and surfer chick tans, and, and, uh, <laughs> and they were perfect. They were like these little prepubescent Pamela Andersons. And I mean, they were just gorgeous. And I would look in the mirror, and I was five foot eight. When I was in the seventh grade, I was like almost a foot taller than all of them. And I had long, stringy red hair, buck teeth, and freckles. And I would look at these girls and see Pamela Anderson, and I would look in the mirror and see Pippi Longstocking. And uh, I felt so incredible. Oh, my God, I'm aging myself. You guys don't know who that is. (laughs) I've died and gone to AA hell. (laughs) But I hated who I was. And uh, we would go into gym class and have to change into our PE uniforms, and I would see these little girls in their little designer clothes and their little lacy training bras and mine fit better when I put it on backwards. There was a, I was just wrong. And I uh, I decided to cut school in the seventh grade. We were ditching, me and my best friend Carrie. She was uh, this little Italian girl. And I loved her more than any of the other girls in the school because her teeth were bigger than mine, and she made me feel good about myself. <laughs> so we cut school, and we went to her mom's house, and we dove into this fifth of scotch, and my drinking career was written that day. I was like 12 and a half, maybe 13 years old. I'm not sure. It was somewhere in the, in the beginning kind of part of my seventh grade year. And, uh, and I took a drink of that scotch, and it burnt all the way down. 
and it burned all the way back up, and it burnt when it flew out my nose, and I took a couple more drinks, and it burnt when it flew out of my mouth. I mean, it just was vile, putrid, nasty, horrible stuff, and I hated it. Uh, and I swore I wasn't going to drink any more of it until I noticed my friend Carrie with these, like, pink cheeks giggling, not worried about getting busted for ditching school anymore. And for the first time ever, I realized that I wanted what somebody else had. And so I started guzzling this straight scotch to catch up with her. And uh, in short order, I threw up all over her living room. Projectile vomiting was one of my specialties. And <laughs> I, uh, my mom came banging on the door because we were busted for ditching school. We jumped out the back window, and we were running all over uh, Manhattan Beach. And we climbed the water tower, and we were hiding in your dog houses and jumping over backyard fences. And I was running from the cops, and they weren't even chasing me. I had so much fun that afternoon. And, uh, <laughs> During this particular phase in my life, I was doing the Pippi Goes Lowrider phase. And so I had this red hair that I did the roof pitchfork thing going on and with the wings and black eyeliner and these little collared shirts and these dicky pants and these carpet slippers. And I was running all over. I know you guys don't have taggers in Salt Lake City, but I was running all over Redondo Beach scribbling La Flaca <laughs> on the walls in pencil. Uh, God, Ray and nobody figured out who La Flaca was. In case you don't know, that means the skinny. <laughs> My friend named me, and I called her La Boca because she had a big mouth, and that was like our names. And <laughs> so I'm in trouble because I did school. My mom busted me, and I stole this little bicycle from the continuation school. I took her nine-year-old brother, and I ran away from home because it just seemed like the answer to the problem that it was presenting itself to me. And I, uh, I wrapped a chain around my neck, and I was dressed in the fashion that I ex explained to you a minute ago. I stole a butcher knife from the kitchen for protection. And, uh, <laughs> and I pedaled this bike with this whiny nine-year-old all the way to East L.A., where La Flaca didn't fit in any better there than I did at Manhattan Beach Middle School. I mean, it was just bad. And uh, it's 11 o'clock at night. It's cold. I got no money. And I called the police for the first and only time in my life ever on myself. And they came and picked us up. And my mom was mortified. She was devastated. And uh, her friend drove her to the police station and picked me up. And she cried all the way home. And her friend was cussing and smacking me in the back seat. And, and I felt rotten. For the, you know, I was looking at my mom, and for the first time, I realized like my actions directly created that in this woman that loved me more than life itself. I mean, the sun rose and set on me. I'm her it. It's me and her, single mom, only daughter. And uh, and I was absolutely spoiled rotten, and I I destroyed that woman. And uh. And for a minute, I felt horrible. If you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous, and you hear people tell you, as you will. Uh, that my drinking never hurt anybody but me, <laughs> my suggestion is that you run. Because that is so not true. My drinking create, created havoc in the lives of people, like down the chain from the people that I loved. And, uh, and I hurt a lot of people when I was drinking. But my theme song when I came in here was, it's my life, I'll do whatever I want. And you can't tell me what to do, and really I'm the only one that I'm destroying. And that was so not true. But... Uh, I got in a lot of trouble that night, and I tell you that story because it's thematic of the way that I drank. <clears throat> I drank to excess, normally straight out of the bottle, no glass, no mixer, no ice. You don't want to water it down and wreck it. 
And uh, <laughs> I normally threw up. I like to have blackouts because then I'll have to remember the craft that I did, and those are great. And uh, I think it's a goal. <laughs> and then I got in a lot of trouble, and I normally got you in trouble with me. And, uh, and then I would wake up remorseful and guilty and full of self-pity and hating myself. And then I would do it again because I can't stand to feel that way. And uh, so I, I started drinking in middle school, and I drank myself right out of that middle school really quickly. Bless you. I got in a lot of trouble, and uh, I barely graduated. They sent me off to high school, and uh, the beginning of my 10th grade year, I had no credits, and I'm in continuation school. I'm not showing up. I'm, I, I take that back. I show up in the morning early with the Tupperware full of everything that I mixed from the liquor cabinet, tastes kind of like kerosene, and, uh, and we sit at the bleachers or the wall or the parking lot or wherever you are, and I drink, and then I have to leave campus before first period so I don't get in trouble, and uh, I ended up in continuation school, and I was just a mess, and uh, staying out all night and running away from home, and there would be weeks and months at a time that my mom would be sitting home calling private investigators, trying to figure out if her only daughter is dead or alive. And my theme song is, I'm not hurting anybody but me. And I would put my hands on my little prepubescent, underdeveloped hips and get that bobblehead thing like the dog in the back window going on. And go like, what? What? And, uh, and then I'd get tired and I'd call her and go, so you want me to come home? <laughs> like, probably not, but she would always let me come home. And uh, I was... Uh, going out all night and coming home early in the morning and I was sitting home one night in the middle of the night and I'm watching late night television. I'm working at Burger King because that's just right down my career path. I'm the drive through technician. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I saw this commercial that said, like Marine Corps, looking for a few good men. And coincidentally, I was too. So there's <laughs> 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 another one, right? Like Navy, be all that you can be. Or no, that's the Army and the Navy. It's not just a job, it's an adventure. And I want you to know that the Department of Defense, like, banned those late-night infomercials because they get people like me showing up at the <laughs> station at 3 a.m. And uh, I turned around and one night, and I was drunk, hanging out the drive through window, drinking and giving away free food and stuff, and uh, there was this Marine standing at the cash register, dress blue uniform, all decked out, and I was like, yeah, buddy, right? So uh, I gave him my phone number and um because I wonder what he had. I lived <laughs> according to that principle all my life before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. That wasn't a new thing for me when I came here. Johnny Harris talks about being a taker of things and a user of people and that describes me to a T before I came here. And uh so I gave this guy my phone number, and he started calling me every single morning, early in the morning, and I found out that he was a Marine Corps recruiter. And uh, if you don't know this, Marine Corps recruiters, the only thing they want to do is recruit you into the Marine Corps. And really quickly, Sergeant Dale Starkey figured out that he had no intention whatsoever of recruiting me into his United States Marine Corps. So he took me next door to the Navy recruiting office. <laughs> and, uh, and December 21st in 1981, I drank myself into Navy boot camp. And uh, I can tell you that I was in the Navy for two years. I was discharged early. <laughs> I was, uh, go figure. I was uh, enlisted to be a cryptologic technician. I was in Naval Intelligence. And I was uh, 17 years old when I left for boot camp. And I was uh, an alcoholic and an absolute wreck. 
And uh, I had my first non-judicial punishment, captain's mask. It's like court. And, uh, and I met the commanding officer of the recruit training facility in, in Orlando, Florida, because I drank in boot camp. And I got in trouble and it almost threw me out. And then I met my second commanding officer at my A school in Pensacola, Florida, because I drank on duty and left base, and they almost kicked me out. And, uh, and at this time, I'm getting all of these special intelligence security clearances so I could do my job. And, uh, and I'm drunk, and I'm leaving base. And I, at this time, I got two weeks in the restricted barracks. They took two of my stripes, half of my pay for two months. And, uh, and I almost got booted out one more time, and they sent me to my first duty station, which was Adak, Alaska. Uh, <laughs> this little ice-covered rock off the Kamchatka Strait in Russia, because we were spying on Russia in 1982, Cold War era. And I, I'm secretary to my commanding officer, and I wear my dress uniform to work every day. And i got to tell you guys, I loved being a United States Navy sailor. Oh, my goodness, I loved it. I loved the pride that I got from wearing my uniform, and I would iron it till the creases would cut you. They were so sharp, and I was, like, perfect in my uniform. And, and I was secretary to the commanding officer of the Naval Security Group on ADAC Alaska, and that's a really prestigious position. And all of this classified intelligence comes across my desk, and I'm sending it all over the country. The only problem is I'm drunk. And I'm sending the wrong papers to the wrong commands. And you'll only get away with that a couple of times. And I can tell you that I was on that island for nine months, not a year like I was supposed to be. I was off that island one time for a couple weeks when they sent me to the psych unit in Anchorage. Because I just do bizarre stuff when I'm under the influence. I am the kind of alcoholic who gets an idea and then I just do it. And then I, <laughs> most of the time it's not good, but I do it. And then I weigh the pros and cons after I've done it and realize that that was a really, really bad idea. And then I do it again just to make sure. And, uh, <laughs> and then I talk to somebody about it because I want you to feel sorry for me. <laughs> I do stuff backwards, you know. My, uh, my mom's the kind of person, she gets an idea, she thinks about it, she talks it over with her husband. She'll, like, contemplate it for a couple weeks, maybe do a little pros and cons list, and then she'll make a decision to do it or not, and then she'll look at what happened. And, like, that takes entirely too much time. <laughs> too much work, too much effort, and by the time I've, like, done all of that stuff, I probably don't want to do it anymore, so I just do it first. And, uh, so I was doing that when I was on ADAC, and I... <laughs> I was in trouble all the time. I'm in the psych unit, and I got sent back with a recommendation that I be discharged. And I was um, 18 years old at the time, and my counselor or psychiatrist in the psych unit said that I had a passive-aggressive personality disorder <laughs> and some kind of other funkiness that had nothing to do with drinking. And, uh, and he sent me back saying that I was unfit for military service and recommended that I be separated. And my commanding officer knew that I was drinking too much. They had put me on antabuse. I drank on antabuse one time. I got through half a beer. I threw up for six solid hours. My face was like the color of his hat right there, just red, splotches, rashes, thick, thick, thick. And I wanted to die. And then I went into the counselor's office the next day, and he looked at me and goes, what's wrong with you? And I go, oh, chicken pox. Like, I'm a quick thinker. I just come up with stuff. And, and, uh, the second time I drank on Anabuse, 
The first time the Navy thinks that's a peculiar mental twist. The second time they think it's grave emotional and mental disorders, which is why they shit me off the island. But I made the decision in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it tells us that uh, we're going to be able, not able to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of a day. That's what that of a day or a week or a month ago or whatever, and we're without defense against that first drink. And it had been two or three weeks since I had drank on an abuse, and I started think, think, thinking. Are there any other think, think, thinkers in here? <laughs> I was think, think, thinking that it had been a couple weeks since I had drank on an abuse. Now I've been on it. My body's probably acclimated. And that was Heineken. I should probably try towards light or something that's like That's almost water anyway, right? So I go over to the EM club. I'm going to try a Coors Light. And then I thought, thought, thought that I didn't even get a buzz before I got deathly ill off of that Heineken. So I should probably have a shot of Jack Daniels so at least I get what I'm looking for just in case I throw up. So I walked in, I ordered a double shot of Jack Daniels and a Coors Light and the bartender was one of these guys that was at the A&A meetings that you guys had sentenced me to. And, uh, and he just looked at me with that look on his face that I had come to know so well of like, oh my God. You know the look the old timers used to give us when we were getting ready to do something that was just so boneheaded and they like their Al-Anon wives had taught them to like detach with love or something and just let you do whatever you're going to do. And they would look at me like, oh my God, oh my God. And he took three big steps backwards and I took a shot of that Jack Daniels. Those old timers are smart old cookies, I got to tell you. And I don't know what happened. I fell off the bar stool. I had a seizure. I woke up in the emergency room of the Naval Hospital and I was off to the nut ward. And uh, I thought they overreacted, but I, uh, <laughs> my CO sent me to a rehab. I spent 21 days in a 28-day program. I never got off of phase one. I was locked down with no phone calls, no mail, no field trips, no nothing. And, uh, and they took us out one Sunday as a group to a Phillies game. And I had my third drinky on an abuse experience at the Phillies game, and it was really ugly. And uh, I left there because they brought me from the game back to the hospital while everybody else got to watch the Phillies game. And I was discharged from that rehab uh, on Monday morning and sent over to the Naval Station to wait for my separation. And it was the first time in my life that I had made a decision that I didn't want to drink anymore. And my <coughs> counselor was sitting there at the quarter deck waiting for me to leave. And he told me, you know what, kid, if you ever want to get sober, call Alcoholics Anonymous. Tell them your name's Tina and you're an alcoholic and they'll do anything they can to help you. But you won't. You'll die drunk. And that man's name was Jim Boyer, who's an old-timer at Alcoholics Anonymous back in Philadelphia. And I loved him. He was the only person in that whole hospital that, like, would talk and I'd go, yeah. All the rest of them are like, you know, little corpsmen, and they just want to talk to you about, like, your sick relationship with your mom or whatever they want to talk to you about. And Jim would talk to me about, like, the lack of God in my life and uh, no substance and no values and, uh, and the way that I drink and blacking out and stuff. And I would go, like, I don't want to admit that I agree with you, but, oh, my God, like, I understand what you're talking about. And I left that rehab with a desire and a firm commitment 
to stay sober. I was going to go to the neighborhood Alano Club. I was going to ask this nasty old witch named Alice to be my sponsor. She was this chain-smoking old bat that used to talk like this. And, uh, <laughs> and I was doing it. You know what I mean? I was going to go there and save my military career. I was pretty certain if I didn't drink, take their antibuse, do whatever, I could pull it out of the fire. And uh, by noon, I was at the EM club pitching quarters and drinking beer on antibuse for the fourth time. And... Um, I was discharged from the Navy July 15th of 1983, just shy of two years, a year and nine months or something like that. And, uh, and I had destroyed my career, and I didn't want to do that. And I, when I left that rehab, I knew that I was an alcoholic. I knew that I drank differently than anybody else in my life ever has from the time that I picked up a drink. It was no great surprise to me. Uh, but there's a line in our big book that I didn't realize was in there at the time in, in Chapter 11. And it says that we know loneliness such as few people do. We can't imagine a life with alcohol or without it, and we're at that jumping-off place. And, uh, and I can tell you when I left that rehab, I would have told the people in the bar that I was an alcoholic because it was a good excuse to have another drink. And then I would have told my command that I'm not an alcoholic because I'm only 18 years old. I'm too young to be an alcoholic. And I can't be an alcoholic because I haven't lost any jobs. I was being discharged from the Navy. I don't know what I thought that was, like the adventure, right? Um, I haven't ruined any families. I haven't lost any children. I've never been to jail. I haven't had, well, I had car accidents, but they weren't bad, bad ones. They were like one car accidents with me in them because I run off the road and drinking. I didn't involve anybody else. And, uh, I'd never been to jail and I'd never been homeless and I'd never done all this stuff. And, uh, and those were all the reasons that I separated myself from you. And from July 15th of 1983 to October 10th of 1984, I crossed every single one of those things off of my list one at a time. And um, I crossed every moral boundary that I ever set for myself. I did things that I swore to God that I would never do, that I was not raised to do, that went against everything that I believed in. And I would take a drink of alcohol and I would just do these things. And then I would wake up full of guilt and shame and remorse and hate myself. And hate you and hate God and hate everybody. I was just the equal opportunity hater. And uh, <laughs> I was so miserable. And the only solution that I know for that, like, ugh, that I feel on the inside is to take another drink. And I would take a drink and for a minute my shoulders would drop six inches. And I would be able to, like, get that full lung capacity, just fill up my, my lungs with that air. I felt like I couldn't breathe for the longest time and I would take a drink of alcohol and I could just breathe and my hair would straighten and my teeth would shrink and my boobs would grow and I would take a drink and everything that was broken about me would just be fixed and uh and I loved to drink alcohol booze did something so profound for me that I was willing to trade everything that mattered to me in my life for just one more I didn't even want to go get drunk one more time I just wanted one more and I would swear off for a little while, and after a couple of minutes, the way that I feel in here requires me to drink again. The most profound information that I got out of the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous is, it's, it's so misquoted a lot of times, people say, we admitted we're powerless over alcohol and our lives have become unmanageable, and there's no and in the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a dash. And my sponsor says, because I stole this from him, that dash means end of one thought, beginning of a new one. I used to think that I was powerless over alcohol 
and so my life was unmanageable. I lumped them together, and what I realized after a little while in Alcoholics Anonymous, it means I'm powerless over alcohol, period, dash. My life is unmanageable, sober. When I swear off drinking, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm going to A&A. I'm doing the deal. I'm going to save my life and my career and whatever. And then 72 hours away from that last drink, I can't stand the way that I feel. I freaking hate myself. And the only way that I know to relieve that is to pick up a drink. What that step means for me is that I'm powerless over alcohol and powerless over sobriety. And if I don't do something different, I'm, I'm doomed. I'm condemned to repeat my behavior. I must drink. I cannot stand the way that I feel. I hate the way that I think. The things that I do drive me crazy, and really they drive you crazy too. I mean, there's just nothing right about me. And uh, So I did all of those things. I crossed all those moral boundaries. I trashed my life. And when I came to you in October of 1984... I was a vision for you. I weighed 120 <laughs> sucked up pounds, and I had big black circles under my eyes, and they were kind of sunk into the back of my head a little bit. I was just like rickets, skinny, you know what I mean? And I wasn't eating, and I realized today, and eight years sober, that I was suffering from chronic liver disease that wasn't diagnosed until I had eight years sober. And, uh, and I was sick, and I was just a kind of little off, shade of yellow. I wasn't like that nice bright canary yellow like some of us get, but I was just a little jaundiced and, and I couldn't hold anything on my stomach and I wasn't eating and I lived in a really great townhouse and really it was like a, a roundabout townhouse. It was a 1971 NG Midget, so when it ran, it got me roundabout town. And, uh, <laughs> and I lived in beachfront property, which was the Shell gas station on Manhattan Avenue. And I would have to pull out of there before the mechanics came in in the morning. And I was homeless. I used to steal stuff from the grocery store to eat, and I'd rip off big bottles of liquor. And, and I would shower down at the sand showers in Manhattan and Hermosa Beach, and people would walk by, and they would give me that look. That looked like, oh my God. And I don't know about you guys if you've ever had that look, but that used to just like cut all the way to the core of my being. And I knew that like that look that they were giving me had nothing to do with who I was. It was just these circumstances that I found myself in. And I was going to have like a stroke of luck here in a minute. And I was going to pull it out of the fire one more time. (laughs) I went to this grocery store. I stole a 1.75 liter bottle of cheap vodka. And I set it in the den. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) I hadn't even opened it yet and taken a drink. And I, I looked at the vodka and I went... Like, here it goes, right? Normal people have to ingest the alcohol before they get that, like, huh, from it. But I get it just knowing that that relief is coming. And, uh, and just like he was sitting in the seat next to me, I heard that counselor say, if you ever want to get sober, kid, call Alcoholics Anonymous. Tell him your name's Tina and you're an alcoholic and they'll do anything to help you, but you won't, you'll die drunk. And uh, I think that was the greatest first step that I've ever worked. I knew that my life was burnt to the ground. Drinking or not drinking didn't matter, and I knew that I had absolutely no control or power over that alcohol. In the big book, there's a two-question test to see if you're an alcoholic, 
It's, it's a lot shorter than the 20 questions that we get from Johns Hopkins. <laughs> it says, if when you really want to, you find you cannot quit drinking entirely, or if when drinking you have little control over the amount you take. Bill's being nice. You're probably <laughs> alcoholic. And, um, and, and I, I passed the test. Like, And I knew step one in our big book says that having conceded to our innermost self that we're alcoholic is the first step in recovery. And sitting in that little car, I knew all the way to the tips of my toes that I was just going to drink like this and die like this. And the problem was going to be, and if you're new in here and you hear people say, to drink is to die, that's a cruel freaking lie a lot of times. I wished every single day that I woke up in that little car that something would happen that would just enable me to be finished. I just couldn't stand it anymore. And, uh, and I knew like my life was over. I couldn't drink. I couldn't not drink. I didn't want to drink, but I didn't want to not drink. And I had nobody left in my life. And, and I heard Jim say that like he was sitting there. It was like that moment of clarity. And, and step two says we come to believe a power greater than ourself is going to restore us to sanity. And I can tell you that at that time I didn't think I believed in God. I professed myself an atheist slash agnostic. And, uh, and I think I worked the best second step that I could do that day. And uh, I came to believe that maybe Alcoholics Anonymous could restore me to sanity. Only where my drinking is concerned. The rest of it, I just know I'm nuts and it's all good. But I just need, like, a break from this for a minute so I could get my life back together and then I could drink again. And, uh, and I did the best third step that I think I've ever taken. And uh, one of my, not favorites, I'm generalizing, one of the speakers that I love in Alcoholics Anonymous talks about the difference between an intention and a decision. And he says that he's the best intentioned chap you'll ever meet in your life. Like, aren't we all? Like, we have the greatest of intentions. I want to do stuff for you. I want to be a good woman. I want to whatever. Uh, and then, <laughs> emphasis on the whatever. And, uh, <laughs> and a decision is actually taking action on that intention. It's an intention followed by action. And so when it talks about made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him, uh, I got out of that car and I took some action. I dropped a dime in the payphone and I called Alcoholics Anonymous. And they sent me over to the Southwest Alano Club in Hawthorne, California. It was all the way across town. And I walked into a Wednesday 5.30 meeting. And uh, <laughs> everybody in there, they used to, I don't know if I could say this in Salt Lake City, but like cover that for just one second. They called Birch the Dead Pecker Club all over the Los Angeles Basin. Because everybody at Birch ranged, ranged in age from like 87 to 143. <laughs> and, uh, and I was 20, and I came flying into this meeting like bouncing with this manic tiger-like energy, and these people looked at me like, oh my God, no. And I would watch them. As young people would come into Birch, they'd sit them down and they'd go, you know, kiddo, maybe you should go across town to the Hermosa Club, and uh, you'll fit in better there. There's lots of youngsters and then they would look at me and go, you know, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it tells us that we don't like to pronounce anyone alcoholic, but in your case, kid, we're going to make an exception. <laughs> Sit down. And, uh, and they would just sit me there. And uh, this old guy named Bill Carter used to tell me if I didn't sit down and shut up, he was going to turn me over his knee. And I would think, oh, my God, old man, like, you can't talk to me like that. Who do you think I am? 
And uh, <laughs> you guys tell me to get a sponsor. Thank God. And you tell me the men work with the men and the women work with the women. And the men will pat your butt and the women will save it. So I asked Paul Madison to sponsor me. <laughs> I picked the one that I would least mind patting my butt. And, uh, and I thought he was this eclectic, funky, 60-something-year-old leftover hippie. And he had long gray hair. He wore these bandanas and all this turquoise jewelry. And he spoke with this Shakespearean English accent, even though he was from Inglewood, California. <laughs> and he would speak from the podium. He would push his glasses way down on his nose and, like, stare at me when he was talking and just bore holes through me. And I would think, one of these days I'm going to be sober long enough to know what the hell he is talking about, because I had no idea. So I asked this guy to sponsor me because I thought I could work him if you want to know the truth. I thought he'd give me a job, I could get some cigarettes, maybe some gas, and he'd feed me and take me to meetings, and if he was mean, I could cry, and he'd get up off me or something, and none of that happened. That was the greatest mistake that I ever made in Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, will you be my and his size 11 went right up my butt, and it stayed there for two years. And uh, he, I loved that man. Oh, my God. For a long time, I hated him. He would tell me I would be in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he would say, you know, kid? Well, he didn't call me kid, excuse me. He would call me baby girl because I was like the mascot of Birch. Like I had 50,000 moms and 50,000 dads, and you guys just loved me. Oh, my God, I was your little mascot. And he would say, you know what, baby girl, if we want your opinion, you have to wait until I give it to you first. <laughs> and he would say this in meetings while there's people talking. And I was foul. And I would, you know, all of you loving little Alanonics would give me all your Alateens clothes that were too offensive for your daughters to wear. And I would fly in the birch with like this 1980s flash dance hair and these mini skirts way up here and these shirts way down here and these fishnets and hooker heels and I'd clippity clop all over the place and go get coffee and go get Paul some coffee and go outside, gotta smoke, gotta pee, gotta wet. And then you guys are as well as the things that like, I think you're slow because I've been to six meetings and I've memorized them already. Like, why do you have to do that over and over and over again? So be crazy. So I'd go over and talk to you while you're reading these things. And I was getting up one day and Paul put his hand on my knee and he pushed me back down to the chair. He goes, if you get out of that chair one more time during a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I better see piss dribbling down your leg. And like the whole room started doing Oh my God, it mortified me. I'm thinking, you know, I don't know who you think you are, old man. Like, I am probably keeping you sober for all you know, because that's what it says. you got to give it away to keep it, for crying out loud. And I'm the only one you got, mainly because you ask, will you sponsor me? And I tell you, he can't. He's mine. And so I was his only sponsee, because I keep him busy. And uh, <laughs> I got up to take my 30-day chip. And, oh, my God, I was so full of myself. It was disgusting. I was freaking glowing in the dark. I was so spiritual and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and I go up at the podium, and my name's Tina, and I'm an alcoholic, and I'm so grateful for these last 30 days. And he gets the sponsor squiggle going on, which means hurry up, because he's going to stand up and make me shut up. And he gets up, and he goes, uh, 
you're finished now. And everybody clapped really fast before I could keep talking. And I would share, and I'd go, my name's Tina, I'm an alcoholic. You'd go, that's all you know. Sit down now. So you see why I wash the cups and the dirty wash it after I do the ashtrays. Like, you deserve it, for crying out loud. You really do. I mean, you guys are rude, and I hate you. And then you tell me stuff like... You never have to pick up another drink for the rest of your life, 24 hours at a time. And I would look at you and think, my God, you only have three days left. Like, it's going to be so <laughs> like, I hated you. And what happened was I went to this old-timers meeting that Birch has the Friday after Thanksgiving every year. The old-timers, 20 years or more, they're all up on the stage, and they arrange them by their varying stages of decay. <laughs> and I'm sitting in the front row, dressed such as I described to you a moment ago, so you can look right at my miniskirt if you want to. <laughs> and I sat there, and you guys did that tagline. You know what, don't you? If you want <laughs> what we have. And I thought, like... Oxygen walkers and canes. Oh my! Like why would I want anything? Calls up there. He's got oxygen and a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. And missing her eyeball. And a prosthetic leg and a, a walker and like the other bobs on a cane. And I'm thinking like if I want what you have, surely I will take it from you. And I know. I turned 21 so I could drink legally and get the heck out of here. Because I could not imagine a life in here with you. It was not my intention to come in here and stay sober for the rest of my long, miserable, dull, boring, pathetic freaking life and turn into some 146-year-old dinosaur flying to Salt Lake City to talk for 45 minutes. That's not why I came to you. I just needed a break, you guys. And, uh, I sat in that meeting and I looked at those people as they said, do you want what we have? And I listened to what they said probably for the first time since I had been there. And I had maybe 45 days sober. And, uh, and I realized that night, about halfway through that meeting, that I wanted absolutely every single thing that you were talking about from the podium of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't want your Cadillac parked out front, and I didn't want your old decrepit husband, which really was new for me. <laughs> and uh, I didn't want your house, and I didn't want your uh, engineering degree, and I didn't want your job. I wanted that sparkle that you had in your eyes. Oh, my God. And I wanted to be able to laugh like you did, that, like, belly laugh that starts right here and just rolls all the way up through you. Like, it just, like, comes all the way through you. I wanted to be able to laugh like that. And I wanted to be able to be happy. And I wanted to be a little bit free. And I think the kicker for me that night was for the first time ever, I wanted to be able to love you. Oh, my God, the way that I knew you loved me. Like, that's my Alcoholics Anonymous. That is why I'm here 26 years later. It's not because I'm virtuous and because I think I have some stuff to say. And it's not because I've done this deal perfectly. I am a train wreck in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> Ask my sponsor. Uh, normally, he doesn't let me give his name. 
because if I suck, he says he doesn't want it reflecting on him. <laughs> <laughs> he left me. And um, I worked the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and Paul taught me what it meant to be an alcoholic. And the most profound thing that I learned, I was talking to Christina about this afternoon as we were walking around. By the way, thank you so much. I had a wonderful day with you. Thank you. And, uh, I used to think that alcoholism was this mental obsession coupled with a physical allergy that manifested itself in something called a phenomenon of craving. So once I picked up a drink, I craved another one, and I was condemned to go on drinking until I was done, uh, which my sponsor calls podium puke. It's great stuff, and it's all reconcilable in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's in our doctor's opinion, and it's the truth. But I got sober at 20 years old, and I used to think like, I don't get that phenomenon of craving thing. And of course I drink one and then I have 16 and I have a blackout and it's Friday and I wake up Tuesday in Delaware and I'm AWOL. That's how I drink. <laughs> uh, and I kind of like that. And when you go, like, if you wake up in strange places with strange men, I tell you, like, I'm a United States Navy sailor baby. It's in the contract. Like, that's <laughs> my job. <laughs> 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 Now I've done embarrassed myself. <laughs> but uh, I didn't get that phenomenon of craving thing. And, uh, and Paul taught me when I was brand new in here, anybody else think that they drink to escape? Like, I used to think that I did. I had a bad day at work, and I just need a drink so I can kick it and relax. And I just need like that. And I used to think that that was to escape. And what Paul taught me is in our doctor's opinion, it says these men and women are not drinking to escape. They're drinking to overcome a craving, there's that word again, beyond their mental control. And what Paul taught me was that the craving that, that uh, is discussed in the doctor's opinion in our big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is not only a physical one, but it's a mental craving. It's this subconscious memory that I have even after 26 years where I know when the crap hits the fan, how to fix it. Like, if all else fails, I've got the answer. And, uh, and I'm going to do what you guys require me to do in here, or I'm going to go back to that answer. Because what I found when I drank is that every single one of our promises in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous came true for me. And I could go right down the list. Like, we intuitively are, uh, what's the first one? Quick, it's a test. <laughs> We will be amazed before we are halfway new. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see our experience can benefit others at 2 a.m. You forgot to put that in there. Like every single one of those promises, I would take a drink and I would get the next one. All the way down till we will intuitively know that Jack Daniels is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Like, I'm going to have those promises in my life one way or the other. And if I'm not going to get them from the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and the fellowship that I find in here, I'm going to drink to have them. But I will have them because I hate the way that I feel when I'm sober and I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do in here. Um, I am totally running out of time, so I'm going to share one more little story with you. I fought this whole idea of God for the longest time in Alcoholics Anonymous, all the way up until about 6 o'clock Saturday afternoon or whatever. I, like, go back and forth with fighting this idea, and I can tell you that I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, like I told you, atheist or agnostic, depending on how I felt for the day. And uh, <laughs> I uh, didn't think that I believed in this power greater than myself, 
And the truth of the matter was, after I did some inventories, what I realized was that I really believe that there's a God. I do. And I believe that this God has this loving sway, like our big book talks about. But what I believed was that that God, it was just too late for me. That I believed in God, but he didn't believe in me. And so it was much easier for me to tell you that I just don't believe in him. And I had 13 years sober. I went on this cruise to Ensenada, Mexico, Saturday night of the cruise. I'm dressed up in this beautiful evening gown. Oh, my God, I look so pretty. And I have a hard time with that one sometimes. But my hair was perfect, and my makeup was great, and I had these two amazing kids at home that were with my mother-in-law, believe that or not. And I had been married to the man of my dreams for like 10 years. And I was in love with my life in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was still fighting this whole idea about God. And I went outside at 2 o'clock in the morning. My husband was closing the casino, which is a whole nother program. But I was on the deck of this cruise ship. And I was thinking like, oh my God. Like, who ever would have thought? I was talking to my old-timers, and Paul Matson died on the day that I turned two years sober, October 10th of 1986. I miss that man today, every single day. I named my son after him. Um, he changed my life in the most profound way possible, and, uh, and I love him. And I believe today that he lives because I say so. And I believe that every meeting that I am in, he is smack dab in the center of because he altered the course of my life. And uh, so I'm on the deck of this cruise ship, and I'm talking to Paul, and I'm talking to Mike Ensign and Frank Priest and Helen, who used to read me the big book, and all of these old-timers that just loved me so incredibly. And I got 13 years, and I'm telling them, oh, my God, look at my beautiful wife. Like, whoever would have thought. You know, I came to you guys broken and foul-mouthed and smelly, and, and I was just so wrong. And you guys looked at me, and you saw a wife, and you saw a mother, and you saw a volunteer in her kid's classroom, and you saw uh, a Navy Sea Cadet officer that was able to make amends to the United States Navy for an early discharge, and you saw a woman that had come full circle, and... You saw an employee and a college graduate and a taxpayer, and you saw all of these beautiful things in me when all I could see was me living in a 1971 MG midget and walking in a room staring at the ground because I couldn't look you in the eye. I hated myself. And I was saying, whoever would have thought, you guys? And just like they were all lined up on the deck of that ship, I could hear every one of them say, we did, baby girl, like we thought. You guys dreamed me into being. You, like, saw these things in me, and you breathed them into my very being. And if you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous, or, oh, my God, if you're not new in Alcoholics Anonymous, we see things in you that you can't possibly see for yourself. You can have anything you want to have. You can do anything you want to do, and you can be anything you want to be if you stay sober a day at a time in here. And you just put your feet where we put our feet. If you just do the things that we do. And I was taught new in here that if I put one hand in the hand of an old timer and another one in the hand of the newcomer, that I got no hand free to pick up a drink. And it seems to work for me pretty good. At 21 and a half years sober, my whole sober life fell apart. My son, who like is the apple of my eye, my older guy, is in Iraq. Like, because I made my amends to the United States Navy. I gave him my eldest born. And uh, <laughs> I did it another way, but that helped. 
So Matt's in Iraq, and I'm full of this fear. And my husband decides at 18 years sober that he'd like to be a hell's angel. So he uh, has an affair with the bartender and rides off into the sunset with a bunch of greasy bikers. And uh, my little guy's 15, and he's losing his mind. He hates his dad. He's so angry. He starts using all kinds of drugs, and he's like the honor roll point guard basketball guy, quarterback football guy, like the first string wrestler guy. He's just like the kid I hated in school. <laughs> and I'm so proud of these kids. And, uh, and Dylan's quitting school. He's got no credits. And he's living out that part of my story. And his brother's drunk in the Navy living out the other part. And I'm sitting in the middle going, ah, when my husband's leaving with another woman. And, uh, and I did the only thing that I knew how to do. I hung on. <laughs> For all I was worth. And I thought if you just did what I said, if you just do what I tell you to do, I can fix this. Darn it. Just listen to me and do this. And uh, and the harder I hung on, the more it all slipped through my fingers. And uh, and I drove down to this funky freaking mission on 6th and San Pedro, and I asked this cantankerous old dinosaur sitting across the desk, like, Help! <laughs> and I told him, I'll do anything you tell me to. Just please help me. I'm going to die. And what I realized was I was sitting in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous with 20-some-odd years sober, and I was dying right in the middle of you. I had 35 sponsees in Northern California. I'm, like, working with women, five of them every single day. They're coming over to my house, and two and three meetings a day, I'm speaking all over Northern California, and I'm chasing you around with a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous like it's a crucifix and you're Dracula. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Getting it with the other time. <laughs> 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 the only thing I know how to do, like, back to basics, do what you did when you were first brand new, and you could just not drink no matter what. <laughs> and I was ready to jump off a bridge with 20 some odd years sober and I was sitting in this meeting where like I live in this little town in the middle of a lettuce field and I'm the old timer <laughs> God help you <laughs> and I'm sitting against the wall with my sunglasses on so you can't see and I'm crying every single day and all of these people that look up to me that love me are looking at me and they're going like oh my God, poor her, like what do we do for her? And they give me a hug and they go across the room and they go away. And what happened was that I had disallowed myself the privilege of coming in here and telling you guys, I'm dying, oh my God, I want to die, do you understand? And uh, in, the, in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I couldn't figure it out, I went and I got Clancy to sponsor me, and I'm working the steps and doing these inventories. Most of them really are mine, and I'm doing everything that I know how to do. And I'm reading step 11 <laughs> one day, and there's a line in there. It says, uh, doggone it, I forgot what it says. It's some good stuff, though. You should read it. That <laughs> sometimes the hand of God seems heavy and sometimes unjust. And during those periods, we're going to uncover new lessons and new resources of strength and that God really does move in miraculous ways or mysterious ways as miracles to perform. And it goes on to say that all of us are seized at time with a rebellion so sickening that we simply refuse to pray. And I sat in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I looked at this God who I had learned to love with every fiber of my being that I believe loves me so incredibly that he gave me this rich, full, beautiful life, and I thought, you did this to me, screw you. And I turned my back on this father that you guys gave me. And I stopped praying. I almost died right here in the middle. And today what I know more than I know anything else is that if I stay smack in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous, right in here with you guys, 
No better than, no less than, no worse than, no whatever. Just right in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous. I know God in the most profound way that I ever have when I sit down across a lunch table and talk to another woman in Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh my God, the gift that you guys have given me is beyond compare. And I want to thank you so much for letting me come up here and rattle too much. And uh, I owe you guys my life, and thank you so much.